0: But it is the Advent season of the year, and we generally focus on themes like the birth of Christ, the miraculous birth of Christ, a very unique situation. And so we're going to go this morning to the Gospel of Luke for this, chapter 1, and I had various passages I was going to lead up to, but I'm going to read From verse 1 to verse 66. So, 66 verses this morning, just to give us the full context. We talk a lot about the birth of Christ, and I know we're all familiar with those themes, but there were attending themes that went along with this as well. The way God dealt with um, Elizabeth and Zacharias, the parents of John the Baptist, were involved in this as well. And so, Luke deals with this in a way that no other evangelist does. So, let's turn to Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, the first 66 verses. And so Luke writes, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent, Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. There was in the days of Herod the king of Judea a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless. But they had no child. Because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. And so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense, And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, "'Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth.'" For he will be great in the sight of the Lord and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll also go before him in a spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zachariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I'm an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. And so it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me, She was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now indeed, Elizabeth your relative has also conceived a son in her old age, and this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren, for with God nothing will be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word, and the angel departed from her. Now Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste to a city of Judah, And entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Then she broke out with loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed." For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name, and his mercy is on those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He's put down the mighty from their thrones and exalted the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped his servant Israel. In remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his seed forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her house. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. And when her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her, her they rejoiced with her. And so it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, but his name shall be called John. But they said to her, There's no one among your relatives who's called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet. What he, um, he asked for a writing tablet and wrote saying, His name is John. So they all marveled. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke praising God in the fear came on all who dwelt around them. And all these sayings were discussed throughout the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? And the hand of the Lord was upon him. Father, we praise you for the word of God this morning and the revelation you give us of these great works that only the Lord can accomplish. We thank you for the effort of Luke, your servant, O Lord, who put the word together and gave us this record of the holy birth, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Quite a marvelous tale, isn't it? There's more there than, of course, I can deal with this morning, but, you know, we do have an eternity to deal with these things, so we'll begin today. Today is the first day of the rest of your eternity. And so there was, in the days of Herod the king, verse 5, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Those are important names. Zacharias, Elizabeth, mother and father to John the Baptist, the great prophet, the forerunner of the Christ, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, the spirit of Elijah being upon him. And so Luke's not claiming himself to be an eyewitness of the events he chronicles in this account. He talks about others who had written accounts. But he said, O most noble Theophilus, I will also write an orderly account. And he claims to have had perfect understanding. An interesting claim, isn't it? So he doesn't claim to be an eyewitness, but he does claim to be the great compiler of accounts of eyewitnesses that are alive and dead. He addresses his gospel to an unknown lover of God, he calls Theophilus, who may or may not be an actual individual person. Have you heard these theories before? Some believe he was a person who contracted Luke to compile a narrative, maybe a, a wealthy patron who said, why don't you take a sabbatical from being a doctor for a while and become a, a chronicler or a journalist and go out and put together and interview all the sources of the eyewitnesses that were there and put together this orderly account that I might have it in my hand. Maybe it was a great patron like that. Some have suggested Joseph of Arimathea, a well-known rich man and member of the Sanhedrin, certainly one of the religious elite of the day, who became a great who became a great believer in Christ and even gave the family the tomb where Christ would be buried. No one else had been in the tomb. So just as he came into the world through a virgin mother, he was buried in a virgin tomb, if you will. Others believe that Theophilus, since it means lover of God literally in the Greek, is really refers to any devoted person like you or me who would take it upon ourselves to investigate the origins and ministry of the Messiah. Luke does make one important claim, however. He claims to possess what he calls perfect understanding with regard to the details of the record. And so he writes, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to take on the project. Now, each of the Gospels has their own character, don't they? If you go through the four Gospels, they each have a different way of presenting. John's Gospel is the great statement of the deity of Christ. It begins right at the beginning with it. That concept, that doctrine, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God, and then he goes on to identify that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld its glory, or his glory, rather, and so he puts together the eternal Word as a sort of nickname, if you will, that he gives the, the Messiah, and they're one and the same, and they're one with God, and he puts that all together for us, the great cardinal doctrine of our faith, if you will, the deity of Christ. Luke begins his orderly narrative with the human origins of the Lord that John does not talk about. And so in verse 31 we read, and behold, you'll conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. And so he puts forth the equally important doctrine that we use to identify our Messiah, the great humanity of Christ. Yes, Christ was divine and Christ was human. And both are equally important components of our faith. And so we ought to know them. But both claim this. Even though they take a different approach to the story, they each claim one thing. That their writing is to give assurance of these things to the saints. The Word of God written and read and remembered in our hearts and rejoiced in. That's the source of our assurance. Make no mistake. If you have a weak faith, it may just be that you have an uninformed faith. And the Word of God is there to bring this assurance to us. John writes, this is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. And Luke writes a similar thing. He gives this reason. It says, that you may know with the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So, friends, salvation is a great gift, the greatest But there's another gift that complements salvation, and it's the gift of assurance. And that comes through immersing your regenerate spirit in the word of God and doing it continually and in a devoted way. And recognizing, friends, the word of God is the food for your soul that you may grow thereby, the apostle says. This is how we grow in our faith, by being exposed to the word of God a good thing to be saved. It's a great thing to be saved and to be certain of that fact, isn't it? It's been said that your doubts may not be to a weak faith, but to an uninformed faith. Well, that's easy to remedy, friends. Get back in the Word. Be here on Sunday mornings, and I'll be here in whatever shape I am to read the Word of God to you and to exposit from it. <laughs> Knowledge is the great gift of God that strengthens faith, and knowledge comes with the compilation of facts that attend the faithful in their walk with God. The writers and compilers of Scripture have this one purpose in mind. It's to become a vehicle for assurance of all those who would truly invest their lives in searching out the deep things of God. Friends, you want to know what's in God's mind. You want to know what's in his heart, what his purpose is for you. It's in the written word, and there is no other source. And so Luke begins his narrative with a historical location. I always circle historical locations in my Bible and times. It's interesting to me that Elizabeth, after she was pregnant for six months, went away for a while. Doesn't really say where, and Mary went to visit her. Now Elizabeth was old, we know, and she bore the um, what did she call it the um, the uh, reproach of her people for being barren. That was sadly how that culture treated a woman who didn't have a child. And here's Mary, who's her cousin, let's say a, a relative. It says, and um, and she's probably young, probably sixteen, maybe eighteen. I would say at the most eighteen, knowing the culture. And, and she goes to visit Elizabeth while she's pregnant and has been, giving her, has been given um, her great revelation from the angel Gabriel. And she stays with her three months. So she's just about ready to uh, deliver that child when Mary leaves. And Mary, of course, sings that great song we call the Magnificat, which um, we read this morning and has been put to music and is a wonderful prayer to God. And so knowledge is the great gift that strengthens faith, though so it's good that we look into these things and know these things. And the word of God is the vehicle for that assurance. And so, so that we know these aren't just quaint stories and f- fabulous tales, ancient superstitions, Luke gives us historical times, historical people, and he locates it in hard history, friends. History that you can research from extra-biblical sources and find that they're right. And so it was in the days of Herod the king. This was the first Herod, Herod the Great, the great architect of Israel, the great appointee of Augustus to be king over all Palestine. He was king of the Jews, literally. And he points us to the family into whom the Lord will be born. In this verse, however, he points to another family. It's important with regard to the fulfillment of ancient prophecies to locate the forerunner of Christ, which I'm calling him. Christ is called the forerunner, of all those who believe to eternal life, but let's call John the Baptist the forerunner who comes to prepare the way of the Lord. And so the oranges of John the Baptist are introduced to the reader here as well, which are important to us. And so the events of our story begin in the days of Herod the Great. Now this is, Herod the Great, I'd like you to know, died. It's well documented, died in 4 B.C. So we know that Jesus was born not in the year zero. There was no year zero because the Romans didn't use a zero when they developed the Julian calendar, so they were off by one year anyway to begin with, all right? And these things have been rec- rectified throughout the centuries by dealing and trying to correct the calendars. But he died in 4 BC. So Jesus and John the Baptist were probably born somewhere in 6 or 5 BC. Does that make sense to you this morning? <clears throat> And this isn't some radical opinion that I've come up with. This is uh, substantiated by uh, everyone who looks at calendars and understands the way these things work. And so it was in the time of Herod. So it was before 4 BC when he died. It's also also interesting that Luke offers us a significant points of interest in the lineage of these families. Both, it seems, are of the line of Aaron. Now, when I say that, both of the parents of John the Baptists are of the line of Aaron. They are from the Levitical or priestly line. You have to be a Levite to be a priest. Not all Levites are priests, but all priests are Levites, we like to say, all right? And certainly that was true with Zacharias. And the verse, the verse refers to the division of Abijah. Now, um, this goes back to the time of David. David um, had the priests work in shifts around the clock. So when Zacharias went into the temple... And he was praying, and he was incredulous about the announcement because he was an old man, and his wife was an old man, and, the, and, well, and his wife was an old woman, sorry. Hey, it's, it's woke times here. We get, we get caught up. No, but it was an old man and an old woman. And uh, it was amazing to him that, uh, that the angel was telling him that they were going to have a child. And if you notice, the people were waiting outside, all right? And if you notice, when he came out, he still had to stay in town in Jerusalem for a while until his shift was up. And his division was called the division of Abijah. David appointed 24 divisions. You go back to the books of Samuel and you'll, you'll see this. But that's what that's all about. And so, uh, Zacharias was an active priest at the time of the announcement of the angel of the, of the birth of John. And Elizabeth was also of the priestly line, also of the line of Aaron, all right? And so the, she was a, a daughter of Aaron, so they came from a very prestigious tribe of Israel, if you will, the, uh, the tribe of Levi. Levi rather. And so verses 8 and 9, so it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood that goes back to David, His lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So he was in there performing his priestly function when the angel Gabriel appeared to him. What a great time for that to happen. Isn't it amazing? Here's the priest of God. Now the altar, the golden altar, was in front of the steps that led up to the tabernacle where the Holy of Holies was situated behind the veil. And you've got the high priest, not the high priest, but one of the the serving priests praying to God and amazed that God actually answered him at that point in time, performing that function. It's kind of amazing to me. It happened so few times. But it says the angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of of incense. And so we should note that just as Jesus sits at the right hand of God, so was the altar positioned to invoke that same um, symbolism. And so it is fitting for the messenger of God to appear on God's authoritative side of the altar. And so the angel Gabriel, the spokesman of God, appears on the right side of the altar. In verse 12, when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. Well, who wouldn't be? I don't blame him for that. And, he f- and fear fell upon him. Well, why wouldn't it? It's always amazed me that believers are troubled when they come face to face with the very things we say we believe, but we always are. And it's my belief that it's because we see our sin instantly in the face of true glory and righteousness, not to mention celestial radiance. So it's always amazing to us when that happens. It's always fearful. It's humbling and troubling and joyous and sensational all at the same time. Just as when the angels came to the shepherds in the field to announce the birth of Christ, they came with this necessary introduction. We read this, the angels come from verse 13. The angel said to him, do not be afraid. They know right away when they show up that men will be afraid. Zacharias, he said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And so as the priest of God is carrying out his priestly function, thing he's done many times, and that other priests from other divisions had also done many times, the angel appears with this great announcement. And his announcement, if it did not refer to so pivotal a person as John the Baptist, would be a rather insignificant thing. Did you, if he just showed up and said, you know, you've been barren in your family, but God's going to grant you a child, that would be a wonderful thing for them. <laughs> but this thing affects all of history, that it happened to be the family of so great a prophet as John the Baptist. And so I, I must say that Zacharias responds just as we so often respond when we pray for the impossible and it comes about. you ever prayed for the impossible and it comes about? <laughs> I have. It happens a lot, I hope. And I hope, we have, I hope you have a rich history of answered prayer in your life. But we can hardly believe it. The announcement did not stop with the first installment either. It gets better. The angel goes on to say, and you will have joy and gladness. How's that for a prophecy? Prophesy that to me this morning. Pastor, you will have joy and gladness. I like joy and gladness. I'm a big believer in joy and gladness. Many will rejoice at the birth. Now think about this. Think of the trial this family will undergo. Some one of these days, I'm going to do a series of topical sermons on John the Baptist. Think of the life. You'll be blessed. Mary's family, certainly blessed. But think of the trial they had to undergo for God to see them as blessed. You will be blessed, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Not necessarily in the sight of all the people. Although John was very popular with the people. That's what kept him alive as long as it did. And he shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He'll also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. So no wine or strong drink for... For John, even from his mother's womb. And he'll turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, which we see throughout the Gospels, right? And he'll also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children. Hold on to that phrase. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Friends, it's not incidental to the story that this statement from the angel Gabriel is the first revelation from God in four hundred years? This is the first revelation from God. We like to say, "Well, John the Baptist received the first revelation." It seems to me it was Zacharias, John's father. Four hundred years the Lord had been silent, and the Lord picks up right where he left off with Malachi, right? So, four hundred years ago, during the Persian occupation of Israel, uh, uh, Malachi was a was. Um, Contemporary with uh, the last great kings of the Persian Empire. Recall that the very last words of the Old Testament, the very last words of, of Matthew's, um, of the, of rather the book of Malachi, are these Behold, I'll send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a a curse. And the last word of the Old Testament is the word curse. And then he keeps quiet for 400 years. 400 years and three more empires, friends. It seems the Lord will fulfill this ancient prophecy. He'll send the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah He'll take up right where he left off some 400 years ago and three world empires ago, and he'll fulfill the prophecy to turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. The very last thing that he said, he took right up with it when Gabriel came. And God will not need to strike the earth with a curse, but rather with an incomparable blessing, the announcement and the appearance of Christ. So this is an essential fact of revelational history isn't it? God spoke to the prophets of the Persian era. And there were several of them. It started with Daniel, because Daniel was there during the Babylonian era, but he went into both eras, right? Darius came after Nebuchadnezzar was defeated, right? And he worked with Darius I. So there was Daniel, later there was Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah. The whole book of Esther was written dur- during that period. So let's not let this fact of history go unnoticed in our reading of the angel's revelation to Zacharias, the fact that God had been silent for 400 years but took right up where he left off with the sending of Elijah, with the prophecy, the fulfillment of the prophecy of the coming Messiah and of John being used to turn the hearts of fathers to children and children to fathers. So the angel is willing to make this very detailed announcement to the priest. First he says you'll have joy and gladness. I must say to you that the announcement might have been enough assurance for me. Joy and gladness, I'll take any time from the Lord. I'm always willing to receive joy and gladness. He goes on to say that the Son will be great. Not just great, but great in the sight of God, he writes. Friends, Herod the Great was great, but not in the sight of God. Alexander the Great was great. He was truly great in in, in regards to the glory of man but not in the sight of God. He's the man that gained the whole world and lost his own soul. It seems that the, the new prophet will be a Nazarite. That's a priest's priest, if you will. And though we read of his priestly status in Scripture, there are a mere handful of candidates who may be said to be Nazarites. Now, it doesn't say he's a Nazarite, and there's reasons to believe he might not be. But one of the, one of the um, criteria is no drinking. For a time. Now, you can be a Nazarite for a time. If you go back and look at your Old Testament, you'll find you can make a Nazarite's commitment, you know, and make certain vows. You'll remember Samson, although Samson's was supposed to be for his whole life. He broke all the commitments. But um, the thing about no wine or strong drink from birth does point to the, the Nazarite um, commitment. Um, Samson's actually the only one where it's specifically stated, if memory serves. And like uh, Zacharias, it's an angel who announced. To Samson's mother. Samuel is another candidate for the honor of serving God in this way. And now it seems that John also takes on the mantle of the Nazarite. Yes, I must tell you that some object to the status merely on the basis of taking no wine or strong drink because there are other restrictions for the Nazarite than this. Some would say he would not have worn camel hair. All right? Because it's being close to a dead animal. There's other things that people come up with and, and those are good arguments. But it seems... John doesn't fulfill all of those, but in any case, John will serve in a unique way, in a way unlike any other prophet. His birth may be said to be miraculous, as his mother and father are old, and she's been barren to this point, and yet the Lord has spent three years preparing the couple for this honor and for this incredible burden. Or rather, not three years, these years. A burden that we'll realize when we think of the hardship that it'll cause the family in the near future. So God waited a long time to bless her with children, but he used those years to prepare them for this announcement. And yet even after all this miraculous interference in their lives, Zacharias is unconvinced. He gets a personal visit from a messenger of God... He receives a visitation that only a handful of people in all of history have ever received. And the symbolism is present that should point to a verifiable divine visitation. The angel appears on the right side of the altar. He appears while the priest is praying and offering incense. He comes in a time that's significant and with a message that ought to be recognized for his, its significance. And yet, Zacharias does not believe. And so we read verse 18 and zacharias said to the angel how shall i know this for i am an old man and my wife is well advanced in years wrong thing to say now friends if i were an angel i might have said this to the zacharias i might have said have you never read of abraham and sarah who had children in their old age how about hannah the mother of samuel or the mother of samson that goes unnamed i might have said zacharias this is the first time in 400 years that our Lord our God has spoken, for the word of God has been silent for these past centuries, and now the Lord's speaking again, and you're the recipient of that word, and you're the recipient of answered prayer with regard to your wife bearing a son, and yet you need more evidence. Verses 18 and 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God. In other words, not the right question. Not the right question for me. I made the announcement. It's just, yes, sir, thank you. (laughs) Anything else? Um, I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, but behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. Gabriel, it seems, is concerned that Zacharias will mess things up with too much talk and too much unbelief. And I think that if he came with an announcement to most of you, he would also have to strike you dumb. Most people cannot stick with the program. I think I'd be okay, but I'm not sure about you. (laughs) Just kidding. Um, I don't think that things have changed too much in the body of Christ since then. Most people blab when they shouldn't, and most keep silent when they should be blabbing. Jesus' very last words to the disciples before he left to be with the Father was a commission to speak. (laughs) He gave a commission to speak. He said, go therefore, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things, teaching them, speaking, friends, all things I've commanded you. And here it is, friends, the Christmas word. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Sometimes we speak, sometimes we remain silent. And in a a historical point so pivotal as the, as the uh, revelation of God to Zacharias. He had to remain silent. He had to just believe. Verses 21 and 22. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. He's probably in there thinking, what am I going to do? I can't tell him anything. When he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision. They, I think they thought he was struck dumb by shock. He beckoned to them, and he remained speechless. It was customary for the people to wait outside the temple while the priests went in to pray, especially during the time of incense. Now think of this, friends. The Lord, as we've said, had been silenced for 400 years. He finally reveals the next step in his plan. He reveals it to a hand-picked priest who's about to become a prophet. He can't become a prophet because a prophet must speak, but he's about to become a prophet. It has to do with his own personal family life and contribution. Can you imagine coming out to all the people and saying, I just got a great revelation after 400 years. The Lord's going to bless me and Elizabeth. See ya. But he couldn't even do that. So the Lord comes with this, and the prophet can't handle it, and he must be silenced for a time. He needs more evidence. And so so Gabriel's like, look, I'm going to give you the evidence you need, but in the meantime, you can't talk about it, and you can't talk about the question you asked and show your unbelief. And so once again, the Lord finds the need to keep the revelation silent for fear the prophet will insert his own questions and uncertainties to the message. Imagine if he didn't keep them silent where Luke's gospel might have gone. <laughs> it could have gone anywhere with all of Zacharias' incredulous opinions. The next few verses read like this. Now, in the sixth month, the angel of Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth of all places, to a virgin betrothed to a man. So the... So the narrative takes a whole different, view. You now we, we have this section over here. If this was a movie, they'd be filming over here in Jerusalem. Now they're going up to Nazareth, all right? And so Mary's up there with Joseph, and he's got his business. He's a, he's a carpenter. And so it tells us, she, they she went from Judea, from Jerusalem and Judea, to Nazareth of Galilee in the north. And the virgin's name was Mary, um, She was betrothed to a man, Joseph, of the house of David. By the way, Mary is also of the lineage of David. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one, the Lord is with you. Again, the same angel, this same sort of announcement, this blessing. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you'll conceive in your womb, and bring forth a son, and she'll call his name Jesus. He will be great, he'll be called Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, your father David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob, that's Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The kingdom of Jesus started at that announcement, and it has never ended, friends. And so the Lord is keeping the angel Gabriel very busy in this season. And so there's the announcement to Zacharias, the priest in Jerusalem, that his wife Elizabeth, that we find out out later is related to Mary, will bear a son who will be a great prophet. And a mere six months later, Mary in Nazareth of Galilee is also met by the same angel to announce the birth of Jesus. This is an awesome bunch of events that Luke put together, here, not it? Or chronicled, I should say. Now I'd like to say, and I do this every year, but imagine the Christmas celebrations among that family. How do you think that would go? Instead of putting up Christmas trees and wreaths and mistletoe and pictures of Santa, they just hang their family portraits up. <laughs> this is my son, the great prophet. This is the Messiah, my, my son, my eldest. Right, And then they grow and mature. Now, can you imagine asking the young, young John the Baptist what he wants for Christmas? What would you like this year, John? He would say... I'd like a new pair of Air Gabriel sandals. <laughs> Camel hair coat, some fried locust, a little wild honey. You know, I remember when we were when the kids were small and we were homeschooling, Karen was teaching about this subject here. And she said, what did John the Baptist eat? And I think it was James who said, honeycomb. Remember the cereal? There was a cereal, honeycomb. James thought John the Baptist ate honeycomb with milk. And I said, honey, just say that's right. That's right. <laughs> Can you imagine if they asked John what he, would, what he wanted in his stocking, he would have probably said, what's a stocking? <laughs> Unlike us, they didn't wear stockings with their sandals. But now I know I'm being silly, but it makes me wonder if it seems so silly because our own traditions have become so silly and superfluous. Now i got to tell you, as I was writing these words about the silly superfluous Things about the traditions that we follow. Um, Karen called. Now, you know, I write on Friday morning and I write on Saturday morning, and this was Saturday morning. This was yesterday morning, and Karen called because she likes to go out and do errands and things while I'm writing, so later on the day we can do stuff together. So she was out and she called to see if I was done yet, and I said, "No, I'm not done. I'm, I'm working through this thing. It's it's a lot of material." And she said, all right, well, I'm going to go to Walmart and get some more cheesy decorations for the front planner. She said cheesy. I didn't say cheesy. I'm going to get some more cheesy decorations for the front planner. <laughs> you did. You, girl, I've never used the word cheesy in my, excuse us, excuse us, family, family. I've never used the word cheesy in my life. It's not a word I use. But for purposes of harmony and priority of concerns, I've made my peace with the traditions as they are, and the accoutrements of Christmas can hardly represent the extent and power of the promises of God through the appearance of Jesus into the world. And if you must know, I like some things about our traditions as well. See these poinsettias here? That's all me. I won't get up on this day unless they're here. And there was a shortage this year, just like the turkeys, but we found those. So I'm guilty too. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he'll reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. That's the announcement. That's what we celebrate this time of year. Now, I've heard some things recently. Maybe you can verify this. That the Pope inferred accidentally... That apart from Jesus, there's no salvation. In other words, he said the truth, apparently accidentally. Now I know the Catholic religion claims, as we do, that Jesus is the path to salvation. But I say accidentally because a rabbi challenged him on this, a friend of his, and he says, are you inferring that there's only salvation in Jesus Christ and in no other way? And the Pope backed off. He immediately rescinded the statement so as not to convey that the Jewish religion is any less a path to salvation than faith in Christ alone. Friends, tolerance of one another's religion is called civility. It's called freedom of speech. We all tolerate the other man's belief. You can't force them out of it anyway. You can force them to say it, but you can't force them to really believe something, right? But to plead inequality of all religion is a denial of our own. No, Jesus was born of the Virgin by the Holy Spirit in the way that Luke describes. You know, I want to tell you, my first tour in the Protestant world as a formerly Catholic young man of 30 years old, I went to a church, United Church of Christ, and I had a minister. And the minister told me one time, I I just got the sense that he didn't take the gospel seriously. So I asked him. I would talk to him a lot. We were friends. He'd been to our house, we'd been to his house. Um, and I said to him, do you believe the Gospels? And he said, oh, yes. I don't know about the virgin birth, but I believe the Gospels. Can you see what he just did? Who is Jesus if he isn't this Jesus? Friends, the virgin birth is, is one of the most essential, it might be the most essential revelation of God. So to plead an equality of all religion, to plead that you believe some things and not all in revelation is a denial of the gospel of Christ. Make no mistake about that. And I'm and I'm you know I feel for you if you have doubts. But doubts are solved by immersion in the word. It's the blessing of God to wipe away those doubts. The Christian faith would have been the Jewish faith if the Jews of the 1st century received the announcement of the real gift of God to humanity, the Lord Jesus Christ, but they did not receive it. Friends, keep in mind, the path to God to bring the Messiah Into the world. He announced it to Zacharias, a priest of God who serves in the temple of God, who keeps the law of God. Luke writes of uh, Zacharias and Elizabeth that they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. That means that they were righteous Jews. This couldn't be any more of a Jewish story. They were both of the priestly line of Aaron and Levi. He then came to Mary of Nazareth. She was still a virgin. She was, in God's own words, highly favored and blessed among women. And she carried no less a Jewish pedigree than her cousin Elizabeth and her priestly husband, Zacharias. Mary was a descendant of David, of the line of Judah. And the Messiah was promised to come through that line. This is as Jewish a story as you could get. But let me tell you. There's only one way to God, in Jew or Gentile. If you don't believe in Christ, you do not know God. And don't you believe for a minute that the Jewish religion has the same God as us? They do not. Because they believe in a God who has no son. And Jesus is the son. He was announced to all these Jewish people. These wonderful, beloved, blessed Jewish people. It's a great religion. And there are great people. But if they have not Christ, they have not God, or our religion is useless, and we are of all men the most pitiable, Paul wrote. One path to salvation. Why would he go through all this trouble to have another path? If there was another path, why go to the cross that I talked about last week? So he came to Mary of Nazareth when she was a virgin, highly favored, blessed among women, all these things, descendant of David the Lord could have done little more to reveal that his Messiah was a Jewish Messiah. He could have done little more than to announce the unique aspects of his birth and parentage than to give us these words of Luke's gospel. Yet almost as soon as he was born, he was sought out for infanticide by no less a power than the king of the Jews, Herod the Great. Friends, the king of his country wanted to kill him. And he didn't mind taking a lot of other babies with him as long as he got the one. And so it was for the Persian wise men, the Babylonian wise men to seek out the Christ and honor him. From Matthew's gospel, right? It was for the the people of Egypt to shield him and keep him safe when he absconded to Egypt to escape Herod's decree. For the gift that came to mankind through the Jews was a gift to all mankind. And so sadly the apostle John had to write in his gospel that he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Paul laments this in the book of Romans, that his own brethren did not receive their Messiah. But we don't change the gospel because of unbelievers, friends. As many as received him, John assures, to them he gave the right to become children of God. I would almost defy you to find another place in Scripture where people have rights. They have responsibilities. But as many as received him, he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. Talk about endowed by your creator with certain rights. There it is. But I will make this plea to Protestants that though we do not revere Mary as deity, as herself being immaculately conceived, as our Catholic friends do, we should be careful not to diminish her as a person, for she is God's choice to bear his son, and in that she's a very great prophetess of God. And I would give her that much reverence as I would any great prophet, of God. If you're not aware of it, the Catholic faith claims that Mary was immaculately conceived. I don't know if you know that. I know commonly people think that reverts to Jesus, the immaculate conception, but it's called the immaculate conception of Mary. I think it's December 8th. Where's Tommy? Tommy's the great priest of the church. He knows all these things. December 8th, And it's a claim, it became enshrined somewhere in the late 1800s by Pope Pius IX, I think, that Mary was also conceived of the Holy Spirit and did not have original sin. So we just can't go there. But it's sad that that was done to her person, and I want to clean that up, because this is a woman God thought so highly of to plant his son there. Verses 34 and 35, And Mary said to the angel, how can this be, since I do not know a man? That's a perfectly good question for a 16-year-old to ask. And the angel answered and said to her, This is an awesome statement here. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. This is a doctrine. I remember Ken used to talk about this a lot. It's referred to as the divine sperm, believe it or not. Do you remember anybody? Um, But the Holy Spirit comes upon her. No, she didn't know a man, but she knew God. Get the connection? And so this is perhaps the greatest announcement in Scripture. I'll venture to say that the virgin birth of Christ is equal in importance to our faith as the resurrection of Christ. How do I say, oh, I believe in the resurrection and I'm trusting in it, but I don't know about the virgin birth. How could you possibly reconcile that? I hardly believe that one can stand apart from the other. When Christians say that they're celebrating Christmas, what they mean is that they're paying reverence to the miraculous birth of the Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're saying. I must say that I do not know what people of other faiths are claiming when they celebrate the day that has the name of Christ in the name of the day. I don't know. Maybe that's where happy winter comes into play or something, or these other substitutes for uttering the name of Christ in the holy day. There's no Christian faith apart from the virgin birth of Christ, friends. It could not be. And I've known wise men and scholars and ministers and priests and pundits and skeptics and geniuses and fools who have decried the virgin birth. A lot of people do it. A lot have done it. It's impossible. I know it's impossible, but not with God. We receive our faith in the same way as Zacharias and Elizabeth and Mary and Joseph received theirs. It comes to us from a divine source, the written word of God. Jesus said every word of it will be fulfilled. In the books of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, he puts his affidavit, his signature, on all of the Old Testament. It's the word of God, he said. And so we read, and I'll close with Luke's words. And so it was on the eighth day and that's the day when all Jewish babies would be circumcised. That they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. Um, that's when you get your name. Do we do that? Do they do that in baby baptism? You get your name the day you're baptized? They do in some traditions. He should be called John, but, uh, or rather his mother answered and said, No, he should be called John. But they said to her, There is no one among your relatives who is called by that name. So they made signs to his father, what he would have called him, and he asked for a writing tablet. And he wrote saying his name is John, which they thought was miraculous, because they didn't know that the angel told him about John. You see what I'm saying? Because he couldn't speak. So he never said, Oh no, his name's John, right? He told Elizabeth his name was John. And she said, it's John, I'm like, how did Zacharias know this? So he asked for a writing tablet, his name is John. So they all marveled. Immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue was loosed and he spoke, praising God. Friends, I hope that's the blessing we all receive. As soon as we're ready to speak the word of God, may our tongues be loosed and our mouths be opened. Father, in Jesus' name, we praise you and thank you for the birth and life and ministry and, yes, even the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ. May we celebrate his birth this season in a way that glorifies you and edifies your people. And so we pray in Jesus' name, amen.